was acting as joint managing director of uh, Trilogy CRE, which was a corporate real estate company. Uh, we were a small company, we had about 15 staff. Yeah, I'd said, no, I'm not changing my password every three months. Jeremy Firth ran a property development agency in London, and he had a fairly typical approach to data security, until the day he was forced to revise his approach. What happened in this case, and we still don't know how it occurred, my email was hacked. I'm Katie Finlayson. Welcome to Hackable Me, a series that dives into the world of cybercrime to help you protect yourself and your organisation. We'll look at cyber attacks that are being used right now to access your personal data. Who's behind these scams? And what can you do to protect yourself and your business? We're going to hear more of Jeremy's story later, but first, let's go fishing. Ryan Kellenbar is the Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy at Proofpoint. Phishing is sending a malicious message to someone to trick them into doing something that could be getting their password, that could be getting them to install malicious software, that could be simply establishing a dialogue that will then result in a request for money or data or something along those lines. But really, it is the sort of thing that spans communication channels and can be used for almost any form of criminal activity. For the last 20 years, Ryan's been working at the cutting edge of cybersecurity. And what Ryan's describing, phishing, is what happened to Jeremy. They set up a rule within my inbox so that anything they wanted didn't land in my inbox when it arrived. Instead, it went into a box called RSS feeds. What that meant is when the email came in, I didn't see it. Um, but the hacker did because he would have my RSS feeds box open. So what happened is these guys, this drainage company, they emailed me the invoice for £1,800. What then happened was it was automatically diverted into the RSS feeds box, so I didn't see the original invoice. The hacker then took the PDF, amended it, changed the banking details on it, released the email back to my inbox. I then saw it. The email was from John at the drainage company. That was fine. So I checked the figure. It was correct. I emailed it to David, our accounts assistant, and said, please pay this. He paid the amount into the bank account. And I thought everything was fine. About a week or 10 days after that, the drainage contractor rang me and said, hi, Jeremy, we haven't been paid. So uh, I forwarded that on to David. And they came to the conclusion that the money had been paid, but it hadn't arrived. Um, at which point we realised we had a problem. And I contacted our IT experts and they discovered the hack. This is a typical phishing attack. And the money lost to such crime can be huge. In April 2020, Australian police arrested two men involved in a phishing attack similar to Jeremy's. That scam netted more than $1.5 million US. So what are the main ways a phishing attack can occur? A phishing attack can happen over any means of communication, although it's most frequently done over email. Uh, phishing attacks are largely driven by really three different possible attacker motivations. One is to simply steal your password so that they can misrepresent themselves, log in as you, and get access to all of the things that you might have associated with a particular account, either a personal account or maybe even uh, a corporate account on a service like Office 365. 
Secondarily, a phishing attack might seek to install malicious software on your computer. Uh, that is what we know as a malware attack. And very often that is done with a malicious link or a malicious attachment. The third species of phishing email, which is one that is driven purely by what we would call social engineering, an attempt to get someone to do something. Uh, that might be simply start a conversation that is then going to lead to a request for money or data or something along those lines. But phishing has now expanded from something that started with solely email and in fact started over two and a half decades ago, really only targeting consumers' banking credentials for online banking services to a really an extraordinarily varied global landscape uh, that involves millions and millions of phishing attacks on a daily basis that go over any communication protocol you can think of, from email to social media to text messages all the way through to uh, channels like WhatsApp. Uh, really, it is all subject to phishing because it's all a great way to get something malicious in front of a person and reach them quite directly. While phishing is synonymous with the digital age, it turns out the ideas behind it go way back, to the French Revolution, in fact. It was an interesting set of examples around, say, a particular nobleman who happened to be imprisoned in the Bastille, and we're just going to raise some money, break him out of there, um, and he's going to richly reward all of us from his, uh, his vast fortune. That's not actually terribly different than a Nigerian prince who simply needs a little bit of money to unlock a large uh, quantity of money, which he is then likely, he, not she, is then going to send to you as a reward for your cooperation in the scheme. But why does phishing work? Phishing fundamentally leverages social engineering. It's how it works. Social engineering is really the practice of exploiting human vulnerability rather than technical vulnerability. So social engineering takes many forms. Uh, children use social engineering when they want to get ice cream out of their parents. Social engineering is the technique or set of techniques by which the attacker convinces you in the phishing message, however that message arrives, to actually do what they want, whether it's turn over your credentials, your password, your username, etc., install software, or perhaps uh, simply give them money or data that they're asking for. The easiest possible path into the vast majority of organizations is simply sending a phishing email. You can go on LinkedIn, you can go on Google, you can find exactly who that person is who has access to the thing that you want, whether it's a supply chain manager, an accounts payable clerk, or uh, a particular R&D scientist. Send them something with a good enough lure uh, that gets them to click. Maybe in 2020, that is, oh, our colleague has just been diagnosed with coronavirus. Please click here to see every place that person has been to see if you need to uh, enroll in our contact tracing scheme. And it is a much easier thing for an attacker to do than to find a vulnerability in macOS or Windows or iOS. But really, the technical aspects of phishing are much less interesting than the social engineering aspects, because really the entire landscape of phishing attacks revolves around tricking people into doing things. That is to say, human vulnerability much more commonly than technical vulnerability. Sherrod DeGrippo is the Senior Director of Threat Research and Detection at Proofpoint, a leading cybersecurity company. I think that Email as a threat vector is really prevalent today because essentially it's something that you, is used for business and it's a type of communication that we really can't get away from in the business enterprise. So we really depend on it for things like sales, purchasing, transacting business. 
The threat actors know that. So they've decided to leverage that communication vector to send their malware. And honestly, it's pretty clever. It's a good communication mechanism and a lot of people use it. The methods by which cyber criminals infiltrate your organization can have many layers. I don't know that it was particularly sophisticated, but I found fascinating one actor who would send an email and it would have a from address that looked like a law firm and it would have a signature file purported to come from a law firm. And it said the person's name, the victim's name, dear John Doe, we've been contracted to prepare your divorce papers. Your spouse has been working with us and the first draft of your divorce papers is attached here. Please click and let us know if you have any changes. What that threat actor was essentially doing was playing on a social engineering technique of concern, anxiety, stress, trying to convince their victim that they have divorce papers, that their spouse is divorcing them. Now, if you are not married, or if you say, I know that these are not divorce papers for me, I feel quite strongly that most victims will open that anyway if they see it, because they will think to themselves, I'm not worried about this. I'm not getting divorced for whatever reason. I want to see what these divorce papers look like. And the evidence that I give to that is go to any supermarket tabloid and look on the cover and see how many times it says that it's got details of a celebrity divorce inside. People are interested in the divorces of other people. And so using that as the social engineering hook to get the victim to click out of fear of their marriage falling apart or out of curiosity because they know their marriage isn't falling apart, but they're interested, I found to be a very creative and probably quite effective lure. As technology gets stronger, people remain an organization's greatest asset and biggest risk. There have been many studies of con artists and why social engineering works over the years. I think it's actually something that is fundamental to human nature. We want to be helpful. We want to engage. We want to be useful to others who are collaborating with us in society. Certainly, the uh, global pandemic is underscoring all kinds of cases in which it is incredibly important to be collaborative, to work together, to get through difficult situations. And the core of what I think con artists take advantage of is our desire deep, deep down in our bones to trust our fellow human and uh, work with them on things. As a result, cyber criminals are taking a human approach rather than a technological one. Email phishing has really taken off since technical vulnerabilities became harder to come by. Right? If you are an attacker and you can simply fool someone's computer, that might be your plan A most of the time. But since those vulnerabilities have dried up, it's been so much easier to simply take advantage of human vulnerability, which has really returned email phishing to the forefront of the cybercriminal playbook. As Sharon DeGrippo points out, the cybercriminal playbook is an extensive one. The sorts of threats that we're seeing right now primarily focus on threats that come through the email vector. A lot of times those are very simply either an attachment to an email or a URL in the body of the email. And most of these threats, when you click on them or you open them, they deliver malware, which is a type of malicious software that gets installed on your computer. Or you could click a link and go to something like a credential phishing page where a threat actor has set up something to mimic a login, hoping to trick you into putting in your credentials, such as your username and password, 
that they can then harvest for themselves and use for purposes later. Something that we're looking at recently is the, the downloaders. So those are little pieces of code that can be put on a machine, sent by a threat actor, usually via email, and it's modular and flexible. And what it allows is that once that downloader is on your machine, the threat actor can choose to send any other secondary or tertiary payloads. So they could then send a keylogger or ransomware or a remote access Trojan or some other type of malicious software after they've gotten that downloader on the machine. We track those really closely. They're very common and they're on the landscape everywhere. Something else that we look at are banking Trojans. Banking Trojans are intended to steal funds out of a bank account. So they typically end up with a user visiting their bank login, but in fact, the threat actor has inserted code so that even though they're on their bank's website, the threat actor is able to pass through the credentials and transfer money out of the bank account of their victim. These threat actors are the cyber criminals most commonly after your money. An example of an email attack that we see frequently are things leveraging payroll, for example. So the email might say something like, you've been chosen to receive a bonus in your payroll. Click here to see the payroll stub. And so what that might include would be a malicious attachment, and that attachment might be a Word document. Within it, there would be something called macros, which is the ability for Microsoft Office to do some back-end communications. It's typically used for legitimate business purposes, but that functionality within Microsoft Office of macros can also be used for malicious purposes. So what the threat actor really wants you to do is open up that document, see it, and it'll say something like, this document was made in a different version of Office than what you're using. Please click here to enable content. And when you click enable content, that's when the macros are activated in the background. And that's when the threat actor is able to get their first stage payload of malware onto your machine and then go from there, possibly stealing usernames and passwords out of your browser history, all kinds of different potential malicious use cases strictly based off of that email where the person thought that they were going to get a bonus and see their pay stub. At the time of recording this podcast, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. This period has given rise to its own particular set of cybersecurity challenges. COVID-19 has been a shocking experience for me, to be honest, in terms of its leveraging within the um, cybercrime landscape. In Mid-January, I was asked by a colleague, not in my team, not in my business unit, quite far away from us, hey, are, are any of the threat actors using coronavirus or COVID-19 for email alerts? And my first thought was, no, no way. That's crazy. And so we started doing some research and we found that, yes, actually, there were threat actors using it in their campaigns and they were they were sending all kinds of things. Some of the attacks that we see are things like, many people in your area have been tested positive for coronavirus. Please see the attached spreadsheet to learn their names. Very, very um, predatory type information. There is a cure for coronavirus. What the government doesn't want you to find out, click here to find out how they're lying to you and then you get a banking Trojan and it steals 
money from your bank account. Um, the Red Cross symbol, the CDC symbol, the World Health Organization, all of these different health authorities have had their branding stolen and leveraged by threat actors to send messages that say they're coming on behalf of one of these organizations and lend some trustworthiness to it. I've seen things that say your flight has been canceled because of coronavirus, click here to rebook. I've seen things that say you need masks, you need to buy masks and I have a free um, source that will give them to you. We've seen things about factories shutting down in China. So if you're one of our customers and you need to get your materials built in a factory, please contact us. Many governments in the world are doing financial stimulus or some kind of economic relief for people who have been affected by the pandemic. We see email lures that say things like, your stimulus information is attached. Please click here to find out how much money you'll be owed. And then we see a lot of work from home. So the guidelines for work from home are attached. Click here to see what you're required to do to work from home. So everything that you could possibly imagine having to do with coronavirus, we have really seen that in email. These security breaches also rely on social engineering for their success. And the way COVID-19 has changed the way we work means we're exposed to even more risk. Working remotely has really changed vulnerability across the spectrum. It is a different reality than working in an office where employees are comfortable. You know, if, if something happens on your computer and you say, oh, that was weird, that was a weird pop-up, and you look to the person sitting at the desk next to you and say, did you see that? Did, was that weird to you? You have that sort of backup check of somebody saying, yeah, it probably was, I don't know. And the other thing that's interesting about working from home is that when you're in the office, you can just march on down to your IT help desk, whereas now they're home alone. And in order to get a hold of that person, they need to send more emails. They need to make a phone call that somebody might not answer. They need to set a meeting. And the other thing I think about is that with more people working from home who are not used to working from home, they're dealing with a technology stack that they maybe aren't used to. Ryan Callumber says the way to protect ourselves is relatively simple. All defense starts with understanding. So one of the things that is the easiest to understand is in fact figuring out which of your people are the most attacked. And not just who gets a lot of attacks, because having your email address all over the internet will get you that, but who gets interesting attacks? Who gets sophisticated attacks that, doesn't, that don't in fact go to thousands of, of people all around the world? Who gets something that an attacker put time and effort into? Uh, and oftentimes, that's actually a very small segment of a given organization's population, maybe a, a, 100 users, maybe fewer. Then once you've identified those 100 users that are heavily attacked, you also want to identify a parallel data set who's actually susceptible to social engineering, who, if you send them a fake phishing email, clicks on it, who reports that, who does nothing, who takes their cybersecurity training and performs brilliantly on it, and who ignores the training that you deliver to them on a regular basis. All of these things can help you understand which people are likeliest to cause risk for an organization. And it really is the intersection of people getting sophisticated attacks, people who are then falling for those attacks, and then finally people who have access to things that you care about that create risk. 
the better you can do in understanding those things, the better you can implement the sorts of controls that matter in a world like this. Being able to have visibility into email threats and stopping them is probably step one for most organizations. Security awareness training is incredibly important in understanding human vulnerability to these sorts of attacks, especially if you can test with the real ones. Uh, and understanding who is doing what with sensitive data really is the, the third leg of that stool, making sure you have some visibility into it, whether that is happening in the cloud, whether it's happening in traditional on-premises infrastructure, whether it's happening on endpoints you own or endpoints you manage in some way. All of those things can be incredibly helpful in turning the tide against social engineering driven attackers. What about on an interpersonal level? How do we help families and by extension, organizations stay safe. I think that there are lots of ways to have useful conversations with all kinds of different people in your family, your colleagues, your leadership. One of the most important things I think that we can always do when we're talking about social engineering or we're talking about threats is to say, did you check that? Are you sure? And to second guess things when they come in and they're asking you to do something. I think that talking about what happened? What's going on? Did you receive this too? Just having that communication open and letting people know this is being exploited for really bad malicious purposes. Never click on anything. Uh, that is a good rule, just period. Obviously, there are so many things that try and condition us to click, 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 click from social media to the email streams we get every day. But if you're really going to something on the internet, just type the name into the address bar and hit enter. It is much, much, much smarter. Uh, at the same time, if you are updating your devices regularly, do switch that smartphone off from time to time. Don't ignore the little number in the red bubble. Um, update it and you'll be in reasonably good shape in terms of most of the attacks that are out there. And certainly from the perspective of home networking equipment, uh, don't use the default Wi-Fi password, change it. It's not that hard. And finally, really the simple and perhaps most powerful piece of advice is to understand who your adversary is. And your adversary is probably going to be a cyber criminal. They're probably going to want to steal money. That is the likeliest thing that any of us will encounter. And they prey on urgency. They prey on distress. They prey on emotional vulnerability. So if you're afraid and you're panicking and you're clicking on something, that's not a mental state that you want to be in. So always, always, always regard electronic communications with a measure of skepticism. The person on the other end of that email, the person on the other end of that SMS, the person on the other end of that WhatsApp message is not technically guaranteed to be who they say they are. So if you're not going to be skeptical of anything in your life, please do be skeptical at least of things like email communication. And if you bear that advice in mind, you are much, much less likely to lose your time, lose your money, lose your information to a cyber criminal. And social media? Just like a lot of other accounts, using multi-factor authentication is a fantastic way to protect your social media. It's very, very challenging to get an attacker-controlled social media account back under your own control in many cases. And the same applies in social media as in email. Unsolicited links from random places, you don't have to click those. You really, really don't. Uh, it is a great practice to not ever do that. Jeremy's data security strategy is a lot different now to what it was. I used to be fairly blasé about being hacked. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. 
And I think I'm a lot more careful about opening emails. And whereas previously, I probably used to open an email to see what was in it. Now, if the title isn't right, or it's not a known person to me, i.e. a known individual, and even if that email comes from an individual that I know and I don't recognise the subject matter, I don't open it, I just delete it. As you can see, it's not the technology that's creating cyber risk, but our own humanity. In this time of remote working, where our digital and human connections are intertwined, it's more important than ever to stop and think about our online behaviour and how this behaviour exposes us to risk. I'm Katie Finlayson, and this is Hackable Me. Thank you to our guests, Sherry DeGrippo, Ryan Callenbar, and Jeremy Firth. You can learn more at proofpoint.com slash hackable me. In our next episode, we get inside the mind of a cyber criminal. What makes them do what they do? And how do we avoid becoming victim to their increasingly sophisticated cyber attacks? Look for Hackable Me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a couple of minutes to rate and review. It helps others find us. This podcast was produced by Enigma Marketing and Audiocraft. Music is by Epidemic Sound.